Hello, brothers and sisters. Welcome to The Sixth Way In. Today's guest is Manny Marshall. And if you've ever wondered in your life, what exactly would it be like to travel the world, and not only travel the world, but do so as a hitchhiker and live on less than $10 a day. That is to live so minimally and so maximize your life experience. What the heck would that be like? Manny's doing it. He's been doing it for four years. He's hitchhiked through over 25 different countries. And his mission is to do it with one bag and to create thousands of friends. (laughs) So... I'm not sure I can say much more without spoiling where our conversation went, but I will warn you that you may be encouraged to dumpster dive, hitchhike, and travel the world. That being said, open up your closet and have a look at all of the things that you have in there. Could you fit it all into a backpack? What would it be like to only select those items that you needed for for a journey and a journey that has an ending that you have no idea what the ending looks like, a lifestyle that has you completely exposed to the world and all the forces, exposed to the seasons and the people, and maybe you need a dumpster dive to eat tonight. But what if dumpster diving was an elegant experience? You may even be inspired to ask that wandering, haggard-looking backpacker a few questions. Maybe they'll have a story to tell you. Maybe they're not some dark, scary, homeless person, but maybe they're a journeyman who's been traveling for years and has seen more than you can even imagine. Manny, I'm not saying he's a haggard-looking homeless guy, but Manny is one of those guys that has an incredible story. So I hope you enjoy. Open up your eyes, open up your ears, open up your mind, and get your passport book ready because that thing is probably going to need to be stamped after this episode. Enjoy it, my friends, and see you on the other side. Thank you for taking the time, Brent. He mentioned a couple of incredible things about you, and I didn't want to know too much about you so I could still maintain some real curiosity about who and what you're doing, you know, or who you are and what you're doing, rather. I don't don't really care who you're doing, but... (laughs) 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 so yeah with that if you're ready to go i'm ready to go man yeah yeah Yeah, let's do it right on we're just gonna get to know each other i'm very um yeah i'm very happy to be talking to you actually i I mean um i I was listening to um your your, uh (laughs) your podcast with the the drifting massage therapist yeah oh right on um it's like it's really interesting to have those kind of conversations with people who are who are living like we are and doing strange things because they always have such odd observations about life, hey. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. great. It's just life seems to be more rich when you're living out on the edge like that every single day. You're just exposed to so much more outside the confines of a normal house, <laughs> normal neighborhood. Right. Right. Anyway, so like it's it's a really nice concept for a podcast, and I love storytelling podcasts. You know. Awesome, man. Well, I've read your blog, I at least part of it, and I've seen enough to know or see the adventure hacking side of things, the travel hacking, and I was just left with right. one really big question from the get go. Where? Right. Tell me about where you were 
the day before you left for that first adventure or the year before even, who were you in that time before you took off? Well, I was I was doing something different to what I'd done before. This is kind of like the only pattern in my life is I keep doing different random things. And um, the thing I was doing immediately before this random thing was kind of um, like a version of the Australian middle class kind of dream, you know, like um, married, house, uh, big mortgage, dog, boat, you know, four-wheel drive, all that stuff. Yeah. And um, – like just kind of running around, like figuring out ways to pay for this and like, you know, keep an income coming and all that sort of stuff. And um, I, I'd hitchhiked before, you know, like I first hitchhiked in um, 2001 and uh, I just had this like intense hankering to travel and I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do something different, I'm going to make it as different as I possibly can. And to zoom out, you've now hitchhiked through, is it 25 different countries? A ridiculous number, and I like I keep thinking I should sit down and actually figure it out. But like sometimes I'm only in one of those countries for three or four days, sure. and so I hardly even feel like I've been there. You know what I mean? That makes it's sense. kind of a meaningless it's a meaningless number in a way, um, but it, it's it's like a lot of kilometers for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what was the moment where you said, "Okay, I need to I need to get out of here. This Australian dream, this is not working for me. I need to." snap this cycle and the hamster needs to escape from the wheel i think i was at this point in my life and i've like been there a few times like i think we probably all have where i just thought this is this is starting to feel like a routine that um i don't even need to think about like Mm. everything just kind of happened because i'd set up this very elaborate and kind of and uh finely tuned machinery to make sure i didn't have to think about anything (laughs) and um when I had that moment, I thought, "Gee, I'm actually, I'm actually bored in some way." Yeah, something. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not enjoying my my brain. Goodness, yeah. D- d- you became an automatron or automatron, so to speak. Right. Do you know that? You've ever had that feeling, like that kind of like it's just too. I've made it too simple for myself. Yeah, yeah. It, it. We feel it day to day. I feel like even if you're in that sort right. of cycle, you're, let's say, you're driving to work. Even that drive, you get to work, you're like, what, what the hell just happened? Was I driving? Hey, we have those right. <laughs> automated mental processes. Yeah, that's – so now right. now tell me about adventure hacking. Wh- when did this come right. out? What is this? Well, well it's like – it's just a kind of um, a pair of words that I've started using to describe the, the broad idea of being able to – adventure in a way where um, you make the kind of obstacles that exist uh, actually serve you instead of instead of hinder you that's I think that's my, my idea um, like you know the the world that I live in in Australia for instance you know it's very much set up to have mortgages and dogs and boats and foil <laughs> drives it's not you know it's not it's not a machinery it's not a society that's set up to live independently. Yeah, what is travel hacking? Tell me about travel hacking. Well, um, the way I think about it, it's like uh, it's all the ways that you can um, you can use the the obstacles that that mainstream kind of existence puts in front of you to actually facilitate travel and make it affordable and, and doable rather than a problem. 
um, you know, stuff like hitchhiking, which, you know, enables you to meet so many amazing people and uh, means you're not spending buckets of money on petroleum um, and, uh, and public transport and stuff to get around. Um, and, and the fact that there's so much great food in, in places like Australia, there's all these big stores throwing away masses of great food every day, just chucking it in bins. And you can, instead of paying lots of money as you can in Australia to eat, you can, you can recycle that food and eat really well. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that, that I described by saying travel hacking. Yeah. So dumpster diving is included in travel hacking? I think so. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, right on. It's such a, it's such a great hack in places like Australia and, and lots of other really wealthy kind of wasteful countries as well. You know. Definitely. It's uh, good. It's good ecology as well. It's it's great ecology hacking too. And are you is ten dollars a day about the budget that you have, or rather, what you can live by? Yeah, that's kind of like the existence ratio. And like you can you can actually live a lot cheaper than that in Australia, um, but it kind of averages out over time because there are inevitable expenses and stuff comes up, you know. Um, so the existence like a, ratio. I, I really like. I've never heard anyone <laughs> use the existence ratio. What what is the may, existence may ratio? Made that up out of whole cloth right I, now. I love it. What can you explain the existence <laughs> ratio for me? That's. I don't even know if I can explain it, but it's Fair. like you know. <laughs> you, you, life with no money at all is really miserable. But if you can find find hacks like dumpster diving and hitchhiking to to be, live a bit cheaper, it's it's very doable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what you're describing, the way you described using the force of the regular <laughs> societal conditions of Australia, of America, of the big first world country, so to speak, this travel hacking, adventure hacking is like the jujitsu use your opponent's force to manipulate them or, or to, or to gain your own favor. And that seems to be what you're doing. It's very Zen like. Right. Yeah. I like that description of it a lot. Yeah. It's got a real Kung Fu feel to it. Yeah. (laughs) Less effort exerted and more, more um, enlightenment gained. Yeah. Yeah. Now in your, as a travel hacker and living with, I imagine you don't have that much with you. I mean, what do you have on you? Well, I kind of, I've, I've got a bag of stuff and there's, there's a tent in there, a little tent and a really light sleeping bag. Um, one of those like really small hiking air mats that you can crush really tiny, um, and a few clothes. And, um, that's really basically it aside from like, I've got some musical instruments. I play harmonicas. So I've got them in my bag. Um, yeah, there's not a lot in there, you know? <laughs> okay, so you're describing one of the scariest scenarios for a normal person, I think. You don't have very much. You're hitchhiking, which many people find dangerous. And I think anybody who's listening to you, to even take one step toward where you are in your world would be terrifying. So... What do you say to someone who wants to experience some aspect of what you're doing? How do you get someone to overcome this fear? I, I, you know, I actually have that. I actually have that real conversation. Like it does, it does happen quite a bit when I'm actually hitchhiking. You know, people actually say like, <laughs> you know, like I feel like you're crazy doing this. Aren't you worried about you know it's so dangerous? People are so dangerous. 
Um, so yeah, it's like a conversation I actually have. And um, I mean, I think like the answer I usually give is is that like what I've discovered through hitchhiking is how amazingly kind people are. You know, um, I just meet hundreds and hundreds of generous, like good-hearted people. It's actually so it really reinforces your, your faith in your species, you know. It's quite the opposite. You, I don't feel scared. I usually just feel incredibly loved. Wow. It, what was one of the more surprising moments in your hitchhiking itinerary? Let's say, tell me about a place where you received love and a welcoming presence in a place where maybe you would have thought otherwise or others right. would think otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's so many times like one, the first one that pops into my head straight away because like it was one of those situations where there were there were kind of like stereotype kind of stuff coming up. Like I was hitchhiking in um, southern Australia in quite a remote area. It's like quite rural, pretty out of the way, and um, this really like this group of people picked me up in their big truck. And uh, it was two, like, young farmhands and their boss who was a, um, a horse guy, kind of a horse whisperer, it turned out later, I discovered. <laughs> anyway, he was, he was absolutely drunk, like, completely, <laughs> like, happily really drunk. Was he the and driver? Usually... <laughs> no, no, he wasn't, oh, right. gladly. That's usually a deal breaker for me. Yeah, but, okay. um... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like, you know, he looked like a really kind of a rough dude. He was kind of scruffy and, and covered in horse horse dust and horse hair and and talking all kinds of crazy gibberish stories. And um, it was like kind of scenario, I guess, that people might imagine and think, oh, that sounds, that sounds quite intimidating or weird or whatever. But he ended up making me steak for dinner and I slept on his couch and uh, he told amazing, funny stories about his life as a horse trainer and his, his two apprentices just sat there spellbound like I did for about two hours listening to Tim tell these incredible stories. Yeah, he, was, he was a lovely host, you know. He turned out to be uh, a golden human being, yeah. And that's, that's even a story that's close to home for you. Where are you originally from? Yeah, right. I'm, I, uh, I was born in Sydney, oh, in right Australia. On. Yeah, and I, I kind of grew up in a country area in a smaller town, but I, I went back to Sydney and lived there for a long time and worked there and stuff, yeah. Right on. Now, I was told to ask you this, but a lot oh, of yeah, people are in... <laughs> yeah, yeah, not... I guess I shouldn't say, but... You, <laughs> you've hitchhiked India. Right. Right, well, I, attemp I attempted you to. You attempted to. <laughs> what yeah. happened? India is like the biggest culture shock scenario I've ever had, I think. Um, and I kind of expected it to be that. Uh, and it's like really um, trying to hitchhike there is kind of like you feel like you're being self-defeating because the bus services are so everywhere and and um, like completely ubiquitous. And the cities are so massive, like just getting out of a place like Mumbai is like a hitchhiker's nightmare. It's the traffic's crazy, and you don't know where where anyone's going. And there's the bus station there; they're just like right next to you. So I ended up like quote unquote hitchhiking on buses. It was just like a series of these weird little bus rides on on these rural country buses with wide open windows, and um, 
yeah, it was just it was just not a typical hitchhiking experience at all. Was there a point where you had to get the hell out of India? Oh, man. Uh, you know, it's like it's, I'm too close to it still. I've been trying to write about my experience in India and failing. Um, I, I'm, just, I'm just not uh, equal to the task yet, I don't think. I think I need to understand India better. I think I need to mm, – yeah, I, I'm just I'm completely incredulous right now. I can't figure it out in my own head, you know. Fair, fair. Maybe in yeah, years that's, time we'll, that's where we'll I'm learn. at. I, the people <laughs> people I've talked to have been to India. It's one way or the other. It's it was right. the most incredible experience of my life, or it was the most horrendous experience of my life. And, but no matter what, people seem to return grateful for what they have at home. It was kind of it was kind of a little of both, like. There were moments where I was talking to people and sitting with them eating food and and just felt so happy and excited. Uh, and then there were moments where I just felt, oh, well, I was really sick for days and days and days as well, which didn't help. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, brutally physically sick. And that always like brings you down a bit. <laughs> yeah, and uh, along those lines, what has been – one of the more dangerous moments you've experienced while hitchhiking ha or have there been any? Um, I, yeah, it's like, it's a hard question to answer and I get asked it a lot. And I think like the only time I've ever really felt a little worried was when I was riding in vehicles with people who turned out to be really drunk. Like I didn't realize mm. when I got in the vehicle that they were, um, though there were a few moments, yeah, that was a bit scary. All right. Drunk driving. Just, is just, just because they're killer. bad drivers. Yeah. Just because they, they drive badly and they have this kind of, you know, people, the reason people are so bad driving when they're drunk is they, they just get like in this thing where they can't, they can do no wrong. They feel invulnerable and they go too fast and they, they're all over the road. It's scary, huh? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, especially if they're tourists and they need to drive on the opposite side of the road that they're used to, or right. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like you've been there too. No, you know, I, I've seen people yeah. drunk driving. Yeah, maybe I've yeah. been guilty of it in a younger, crazier time in my life too. Thankfully, yeah, in the country, right. uh, <laughs> for better or yeah, for worse, I, the things but, we do, huh? Goodness, yeah. If you had a an apprentice, what would be some of the first things that you would train this person to do? <laughs> ah, yeah, like I like the idea of mentorship, and, and it's something I really try to do a lot on the blog. Like, yeah, those those articles about equipment and stuff came out of the thing that people would say, "Oh, what are you using?" You know, and um, one of the like the biggest satisfaction that I get out of making raw safari is that people write to me and say, I want to, you know, I want to do an adventure. I want to have some crazy experience in my life. And um, they ask me really specific questions about like what they should take and how they should prepare themselves and what to expect. Sure. And I really like being in that role. And I think it's like um, a role that so many travelers can offer people to, to, to help them 
feel confident because it's all people really need. Like, yeah, what would be the what would be the thing I would say to everybody who who asks me a question about adventure is just be confident. Know that you can. And that fear you feel is actually the thing your courage is going to grow out of. So it's great. If you feel afraid to do a thing, go and do it because you're going to get braver and it's going to like be the best experience of your life probably. Beautiful. Just step into the fear. Go where the resistance yeah, because lies. Yeah. That's where the that's where the adventure is, yeah. Beautiful. I really encourage people on my own to do that and hope to one day get to where you are in this global mobility program you've got going. Uh, well, the beautiful thing about courage is like we're all in that together because like I don't think there's ever an end to it. Whatever you do, you're still going to have to keep getting braver. <laughs> it's ne- It never ends, right? Is that what you're finding on your adventures? I think, yeah, I think I'm pretty certain about that. Like I don't think there's ever going to come a time where I feel no fear. I just don't think that happens for people. The best we do is is get brave enough to like encourage, brave enough to overcome the fear. Sometimes, <laughs> would you say that the more you experience fear, the more sensitive your fear radar becomes? Like I worry sometimes, maybe I get a bit desensitized to it, <laughs> uh, you know, and then I have these moments, uh, often it's about emotional things more than physical things. I have these moments where I realize, oh, you know, I should have been a little more cautious, you know, I should have been a little more careful because I'm a bit desensitized maybe to going into crazy situations. I. <laughs> Right, I have to be a bit self-monitoring sometimes. I think, especially if I feel like I could be harming other people around me, or just you know disrespecting them because I'm being a bit reckless. Maybe you know. Tell me more about that. What does that What does that look like to you? Where What are moments that you've been desensitized to? Yeah, I think I'm a I'm a bit desensitized to. Um, some kinds of really intense social interaction. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of, I guess the cliche is to say you're not big on small talk, but I, I kind of like to jump into really, I like conversations like the one we're having now, Timo, you know, like conversations that go to really interesting places about what life's about and uh, what we fear. And I think those kind of conversations can make people really uncomfortable. Um, I've got a kind of a, you know, I'm aware that I have a pretty big personality and when I start talking about stuff I'm passionate about, I think sometimes maybe <laughs> I freak people yeah, out a it, bit. That can be a bit, <laughs> that can, that's crazy to think about, isn't it? It. I remember traveling, if there was a t-shirt that I could have worn, it would have given the answer to where are you from, where are you going, how long have you hmm. been traveling? <laughs> the standard questions. Yes. And yeah. it became tiring, but at the same time, you know, that's not much of a foreign world because we experience that in the day-to-day, no matter where we are, the what do you do, the who, what, where, when, why, how, and that's it. So to dive deeper, that seems to be where the courage is required, as as you're saying. How long does it take you to find out when you're talking to someone okay, this person I can dive in with, or do you not even care about that anymore? 
I really care, like at the level that I hate. I hate to. Um, I don't like making people uncomfortable, let alone unhappy. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, I, I really don't know how to answer that. It's a difficult question. Fair, um, fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. I, tr- I really work hard to try and treat people as individuals because I know that's what I want from other people when they're talking to me. I just I think we all want to be treated like ourselves and nobody else, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like really observe me, really listen to me. Like that's that's what I like to do and that's what I like to feel. Like are you listening to me? If so, this is a good conversation, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. It Listening is a lost art. And a cool thing about the word listen is that silent is spelled with the same letters. Right. Interesting. Yeah. That's <laughs> very nice. I may have seen a meme about it recently. <laughs> oh, those like, memes, you know, they right got... On. <laughs> they, they reduce deep they conversations some... into a picture. <laughs> they are something. I've talked to people who are obsessed with bug out bags. Are you familiar with bug out bag? Yeah, I think it's the same thing as a go bag, right? A go bag. Yeah, maybe. The the bag that you just pick up when you need to go? Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. If you could reduce your bag to the absolute bare minimum, what would be the three tools that you would take with you? Well, like, you know, let's get technical. It would depend where I am, right? Because if I know I'm going into a really cold climate, I go uh. straight for the... F- the fleece jumper or the jacket, right? That'd be number one. But then there's other really number one things like I I really don't like to be without my um my tent now. You know, it's it's such freedom to know that you'll you can survive and be dry and comfortable just about anywhere, anytime, no matter where life takes you or where that person lets you out on the side of the road at one in the morning or whatever, you know? Man. Um yeah, <laughs> and I love my pocket knife, you know? Who doesn't love their pocket knife? <laughs> yeah, you're able to carry that with you, or do you have to check it in every country? Yeah, I have to, I have to put it in the, the that is bag if you're flying. that goes in the hold. Right, right, if I fly, totally. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I lost one. I, I, lost a, I lost a pocket knife at Disneyland. <laughs> at Disneyland? <laughs> Yeah, I walked I, I walked all the way across the, the parking lot, you know, and I got to the gate and I realized I had the silly pocket knife in my pocket and by then I didn't, you know, so they confiscated it because they have, they have better security at Disneyland than they do at LAX. It's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, it's probably all the kids that are in there. I, I mean, Disney so can terrible. afford it. You, Disney's also very protective of their <laughs> characters. You can't, you, you cannot use their characters unless you pay Disney a lot of money. Right, they're they're like a massive, uh, yeah, like a massive religion or something. Yeah, it, there's always there's a story of a gas station that had a picture of one of the Disney characters up on it, and they had to take it down because Disney found them and filed a lawsuit. <laughs> wow, wow! I don't know the details. You can Google it, but <laughs> there must be a million Disney stories like sure. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Talking about Disney. It makes me want to ask you two other questions related or not. But how do you okay. decide the next place to go? And if it's not an huh. easy decision, 
or you don't decide like that, what is your internal compass and how do you find that? For the last like four years, I, I often really don't know where I'm going until I'm on my way. Like that sounds like a really glib answer, but it's so true, um, especially hitchhiking. You know what hitchhiking is like. Sometimes you don't really care where you end up. You just want to get away from where you are right now because it's probably a service station at three in the morning and it's raining, you know, and you're thinking anywhere. <laughs> just take me any, just take me anywhere. <laughs> And having those kind of really low and non-specific expectations leads me to really interesting places sometimes, you know. It's, um, and and you really observe the place you're at because it's so different to where you just were, I guess, right. too. I have in my mind this video of you in Serbia, and oh. it looked like a refugee camp or right, right. what was going on there? Yeah, uh, I, I was hitchhiking across Europe earlier this year, and I, I just crossed the border between Hungary and Serbia. Uh, and there's a big, like, really high barbed wire, razor wire fence there now, and that's really recent. I think they put that fence up this year um, or last about, year. Is that just border control, or is there migrations yeah. happening? Or right, so this is part of this enormous mass exodus from Syria and the broader Middle East and um, Pakistan that's been happening over the last few years. There have just been hundreds of thousands of people walking and then busing and hitchhiking and bicycling across Europe to try to get sanctuary. Um, and uh, the Hungarians um, put up a big fence along the border there. And right on the other side of the fence, on the Serbian side, there was a kind of a, um, a small, very informal-looking, very um, dilapidated refugee camp. Um, and I was just hitchhiking there, you know, near the, the toll gates and the, and the visa control and all that stuff. Uh, and right, while I, right behind me as I was hitchhiking, I could see um, refugee families walking back to the camp. Uh, and I was just, I was expecting to see something like that at some point. And uh, uh, I kind of wound up talking to Ahmed, a, a young Pakistani guy who was there. Uh, and he was describing his experiences and violence he had from the police on the border. And uh, I wanted to kind of keep following that conversation and, and learn more about the camp. So I went there and I uh, wanted to talk to people, but because I had my, my camera phone out and I'm kind of conspicuous in that situation because of that, uh, the Serbian police basically told me to switch off the camera and leave. Um, yeah, that's that's what happened with that, yeah. Wow, wow. Did you see any of the migration that you mentioned from, let's say, North Africa, the Middle East? Did you right. witness any part of that? Yeah, and I mean, you really don't have to look very hard. As soon as I came from the British side across to France in the uh, the ferry, and we came off the ferry, I rode in a, a truck with a Serbian truck driver, and we come off the ferry, um, and right there in Calais, yeah, Calais, there were still massive refugee camps at that time. They've all been taken apart now, and the people have all been evicted from them. That was called the Jungle, places. right? Right, it was the jungle, yeah, this huge, huge area of white tents and cold, miserable-looking people in this cold, rainy, windy weather. Um, so that was like, yeah. 
what's the sense that you get from the refugees that you've encountered? Well, yeah. Well, Ahmed Ahmed was a really, um, I think, a really optimistic guy. That was the thing that really struck me. I mean, he'd had some very tough experiences in the last couple of years, and he was kind of unbowed by it. He had this powerful optimism I couldn't help really respecting and admiring, you know. With your perspective of those refugees, what would be something that you would recommend other people like us in the States were completely shielded from the whole thing? What would you say to somebody who has no idea and maybe they're viewpoint is we need to we need to wall up our country and not let anybody in what would you say to huh. that? because yeah, there's a lot of right. that going on well, here well i also this year hitchhiked across the united states you know from florida to california right through the middle um and i i, I think i would say to any americans who who are kind of new to that idea that those people exist inside America too, in a way, you know, like um, there are certainly refugees in America, many, many, and a lot of them are kind of unofficial too, I guess, like people who are fleeing violence in places like Mexico and coming to the States. A lot of them are living on the street or uh, in the, in the cracks in society. And, you know, they hitchhike like I do and live, live in tents sometimes. Um, yeah, and those people are everywhere. They're in Australia. They're in they're in any part of the world you go. There are people who have been kind of tossed aside by society and forced out of their lives by violence. And yeah, we need to start like noticing them and trying to do a better job of taking care of them. I think, or at least helping them to take care of themselves. Yeah, exactly. You have a really unique perspective in that. That you're in there and you're still. You have a mindset that understands both worlds. This is what I want to just, what I would like to say. You understand how regular Australia or the U.S. works, but you're weaving through that. It's an underworld to a lot of people. Definitely an alt culture, like it's a subculture, and it's kind of it's ignored a lot, whether deliberately or subconsciously. And like, yeah, it is a unique perspective in some ways. Um, I mean, I get taken for a homeless person a lot. And in a technical sense, often I am, you know, but I prefer to think of it as home free. It's like what I've, what I've done is choose it. I have that privilege. A lot of people don't have that privilege. They're forced into living without a home for whatever reason, violence in their home culture or poverty or abuse or whatever it is, mental illness. Um, so I kind of I, I share and inhabit the spaces that they inhabit a lot of the time. And I think like part of the reason I started this journey was so I would have that opportunity to get to know that culture and understand it a bit better anyway. It's very it's very opaque to us when we live in houses and look out our windows at it. Oh, exactly. And while you're in there, did you ever have any direct experience from say your average person on the street? Any direct words from passersbys who think that you're a let's say a homeless guy or a refugee? <laughs> I'll give you a I'll give you a silly example of that. There was um, a period uh, last year where uh, my my best bro Craig and I were um, living on the the beach in Australia in our tents uh, in a very kind of plush resort area actually for weeks and weeks. 
and we were getting some great dumpster diving there, eating like kings. <laughs> uh, we had we had so much food we couldn't eat it, you know. <laughs> One night we uh, we found a jar of caviar in the bin. I'm not kidding, like a little jar of very nice caviar in the supermarket bin, and we we had that. But we'd already eaten so much that night. We had a little taste each, but it's very rich. We really couldn't finish it, you know. So I said, "Oh, let's give it give it to the dog. Fish oil's good for dogs. Um, Pace seal, love it." So so she she had caviar on her mutton on her uh, lamb chop for dinner. And the next day, we're sitting uh, sitting on the curb outside a fast food restaurant using the Wi-Fi, you know, doing a little travel hacking. We're downloading the free corporate Wi-Fi without making any horrible food purchases. <laughs> and uh, a lady comes out of the, the restaurant and sort of looked at us and looked at KC, the dog, and she's like, I hope you're feeding this dog properly, you know, <laughs> implying like, you know, we're bums and we should Yeah, you bums, get out ourselves. of here. <laughs> I can't believe you're abusing this dog. <laughs> I'm starving this poor dog and... And Craig's like, you know, oh, well, actually, she had caviar for dinner last night, and this poor lady, she was quite annoyed. She thought we were really, <laughs> really winding her up, you know. <laughs> oh goodness! Gave us a very uh, annoyed and angry expression, and <laughs> but it was true, you know. <laughs> the dog was living pretty well. <laughs> yeah, dumpster diving always. It fascinates me because there's some dumpsters in Seattle that have exquisite food hiding within right, them. Right, right. And it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're talking organic food and chocolates and all this stuff. Right. It, and nobody touches it. Not even the people who, not even the homeless people. It seems it's want such to a massive eat it. taboo. It's such a huge taboo. Like, what are you taught from like when you're a tiny, tiny kid? You can't even speak yet, but your parents tell you, don't eat garbage, don't eat off the floor. You know, we, we associate waste disposal with, with, with disease and, and rightly so, you know, like there are certainly protocols to observe if you want to dumpster dive successfully. There are certain things you don't eat. Um, but that's the thing is that we live in the society, you and I both, we live in societies where waste is just almost at criminal levels when it comes to food and so much of what they throw out is it's still cold from the fridge. It's still got two days on the use-by date. It's sealed hermetically in plastic packaging that's in, you know, invulnerable to any kind of tampering. You know, like, this food is absolutely pristine. Exactly. And even that's more criminal is this food that it's criminal that it's being wasted in this way. And then furthermore, it's, then criminal to use the food that's been thrown away in many places. Right. They'll actually accuse you of stealing. If they exactly. see you going through their bins, they'll accuse you of stealing. Exactly. Put yeah. locks on the dumpsters. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know what the core of that is, but it seems a bit ridiculous. I will say, though, I've never actually had the police show up Um you know, they, they sometimes you'll get store store people who are a bit crabby and give you a telling off, but they may threaten to call the cops, but it's never actually happened to me. I think usually I have a conversation with those people rationally about what I'm doing and point out to them that the bin is like labeled with recycling propaganda, you know, like I'm exactly. just recycling. And usually they if they if they're sort of like take a second to listen to that, at least they don't they're not so angry with you anymore. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> you know. 
Incredible. Yeah. I, yeah. I've yet to be caught, but I can't say that I've done it too often. Some of the dumpsters in Seattle, at least, even are organic material. So that that is organics. And companies will take the time to unwrap the foods that they're throwing away and separate the wrappers from the mm. food. It's a really huge untapped source of <laughs> source of food. Right. Well, it's really, excuse me, <clears throat> it's really great that they're actually making some effort to at least take that stuff out of the carbon cycle. I mean, it's a beginning, right? I mean, it'd be nice if humans could actually eat it, but um, at least they're going to try and mulch it or something. Yeah, it's incredible. In, in this world, I'd say in this world, I mean this in-between world or rather the world that you're living in, what we're describing, what are a few of the lessons that you've learned from the people that you've met who are in this dark place? I think like, you know, I like the, I like the adventure hacking analogy so much because like the people that are in this space are really like hackers in so many ways, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that many hackers, but what I know about hacker culture is there's a big sense of humor with it. It's very defiant. Um, there's definitely a strand of people in this culture who uh, see that what they do as activism, um, or at least they see that they have an opportunity to um, give offer people a different way of thinking about things. And I think there's a lot of fun, you know, like what a, what a hack is really known for is having fun with people. And <laughs> I mean, obviously there's a dark side to hacking as well, but the sort of hacking we think of in a positive light, like whistleblowers, people who share information that we need to know with us and um, uncover the things our governments would like to hide from us. We, we see those people as having fun with it, I think. They're, they're sort of playing a big, a big game in some way, aren't we? Sure. It's almost like you're lifting the curtain on a world that's right before our eyes. Yeah, we're the kind of spoil sports who like go into the Wizard of Oz's palace and just like grab the curtain and yank it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just because exactly. it's good, you know, fun to do that, and someone should. <laughs> and look at the, look at this little bastard behind the curtain. Look at this guy. <laughs> well, he's kind of adorable. I mean, it's, you've got to love him for his his sort of vulnerability, but maybe he's not doing us any yeah. favors by <laughs> by uh, faking us all out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I once managed a hacker house and I had to explain the term hacker to a lot of people. Uh, okay. And I think we probably just come to a new definition that, at least that for me, a new definition. Um, that, that, <laughs> yeah, everybody always assumes North Korean hackers attempting uh -huh. to take down right. the government. But hey, you know they're doing their part in the world too. <laughs> yeah, I think inevitably if you're part of any group that's a bit dissident, a bit activist, you're going to have a lot of unkind um, epithets thrown your way. People are going to try and characterize you in villainous <laughs> terms because that serves a lot of agendas, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so you had another nice quote on your site and said, life's too short to waste time following rules. Ha <laughs> What rule did yeah. you break to that led you to that conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You know the worst thing is that I'm kind of like well, I really I'm really a sucker for rules, you know, uh, and I keep applying rules to myself all the time. Um, something I'd like to change about myself. What do you mean more, by that? More. 
applying more rules well, to yourself? Why are we? Why are we so? Why are we so obsessed with trying to codify ourselves? You know, we're like sometimes think like we're such complicated creatures. If maybe we need, maybe we need to think less about what we should do and think more about what generates excitement and happiness for people. You know, um, and there's always there's always people who have a vested interest in our exploiting our time and our humanity in applying rules to us too you know ever since you're a little kid there's, there's always a lot of rules and some of them some of them are valuable and some are not i guess like i think it's important that we all think sometimes about which rules are arbitrary and which rule, rules are really serving people and making them happier yeah exactly that sounds like a great hack to follow in that i was reading a psychology book the other day it's psychology or influence the psychology of persuasion and this is a key point from there about scarcity that is you think of a toddler think of a kid and they're terrible twos if right you take two kids and let's say you you take a toy and you place the toy behind a barrier the bigger the barrier uh-huh. the more the kid wants the toy and the more <laughs> is essentially that you take the barrier away the the kids tend to want it less and as we grow up, that doesn't really change that much. Yeah, I think the concept of freedom really falls into that nicely because we're sold this idea that uh, freedom is something we have to earn, that um, it, we have to, we need resources, a lot of resources to achieve it. You know, the idea of financial independence and, um, you know, making a, a place for yourself in the world and, you know, our, our governments are all telling us they protect our freedom and really like all you need to be free is think is ask yourself that question, like which rules matter and which rules are just serving some rich guy's interests right? or a bunch of rich people's interests. You know, which rules actually mean that society is better, and which which just makes someone rich. And that's if you can ask yourself that question, you would already walking towards bigger freedom, I think. Yeah. And what would. I'm thinking of a small example maybe would be, let's say, cookies. And a cookie that (laughs) there's only one cookie left. And Uh you're at the counter and maybe there's only one chocolate chip cookie left. And there's a hundred oatmeal raisin cookies. Uh Because that one chocolate chip cookie is there, the store decides to lift the price of it to three times what the other cookies are worth. So now uh-huh. you have this scarce object, and now people are clamoring over it and want it more and more. And the store is like, ah, well, we can only give it to one person, but we've got all these other cookies. That is, at the end of the day, is the cookie going to give you the same thing? Is it going to give you a sugar high or whatever it is? The utility, the utility of the cookie is the same. Just get whichever cookie you can get for the cheapest price. If, right you need the cookie to possess the cookie to have this cookie as a symbol of something else. Well, that's another story. And I think that might be where people are getting duped. Well, I really like the cookie analogy because I think <laughs> cookies make very persuasive arguments. And I think, yeah, what you describe is basically like some, some fast food chains, whole marketing strategy. And it, it shows you the power of, of, dangling things in front of people and making them think they need them you know yes. Yes. <laughs> you, you don't need to make rules if you have good marketing 
much like the Australian or American dream. Right. Keep, keep dangling it far enough away, keep people going yeah. through that same pattern that you described earlier, and perhaps vying for all these resources and constantly we're working to obtain resources. But along the way, we forget one thing, and I stuck a pin in this because you said this, we, we're forgetting how to be resourceful, which seems to be what, it, which is exactly the lifestyle that you're living is it's resourcefulness, knowing what resources you can use the bare minimum to get you by versus having right. to and own and possess all these resources. Right. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's like our strongest suit as creatures, you know, like what are humans essentially? We're so resourceful. Um, we're gifted with so much creativity and uh, I don't think I don't think we encourage each other enough to use it you know like I'd really love to see um, there'd be a lot more emphasis in our society and our education system especially and the things we tell the stories we tell each other about creativity let's really celebrate it every opportunity we get because it's what makes us happy a lot yeah. of the time it's what what gives us freedom beautiful Manny, that's great. <laughs> now, at some point, are you planning to return home? And you may have already touched on this. What is home to you? Ah, oh, home has been like for the last four years. It's been wherever I'm at. I really kind of wanted to inhabit that, and I felt it definitely. At some point, I started to really feel that way. That it didn't matter where I was if I was in the right kind of frame of mind and with the right kind of people I was home you know yeah um, but I think like home culture is really important too like I can't ignore that some cultures make me feel really comfortable and supported um, yeah like uh, are we all like that I think are we all like that because like we're so much in one place sometimes that we we just feel like it's a natural comfort zone there. That's a kind of home, isn't it? Like the place where you don't have to figure stuff out every every day, I guess. Exactly, exactly. I, Australia, Australia still has that for me. Um, when I'm there, I kind of – it's like sitting on a nice fluffy couch. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, the lazy boy, the lazy boy keeps right. you sitting in it. Please do not yeah, leave me. Australia is such a lazy boy recliner of a culture too. Like, you know, you know that's one yeah. of the biggest reasons I had to leave New Zealand while I was there. It was really? a la <laughs> it was a lazy boy to me, and that might not make sense to people listening, but it was a lazy boy, and that was the number one reason I had to leave that country. As huh. I mean, I, I was there for a few months. I could have stayed there the rest of my life easily. Australia, the same thing. Right. Uh, that's Man, over these four years, if you could distill your lessons into three points, maybe you only have one, what would those three biggest lessons be? Three lessons I learned in the last four years of this crazy thing I've been doing. Oh, wow. Um... <sighs> <laughs> um... People are people are more incredibly kind than I ever imagined before. Like 
I think I've experienced more kindness than I ever expected. I kind of thought people were pretty good, but that's been a big one. Um, it's just it's so consistent too across every culture and every nation and place I go. I just am constantly amazed how people can be so nice to people I've never met before. Like I'm this guy they've never seen, and uh, they just befriend me and you know invite me to come to their home and meet their families and stuff like that. That's huge. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, and I think that's like something everyone who travels gets out of travel. At some point, you realize like we're a big family right across the whole sphere the whole planet it's really it's important thing for us to know i think especially now uh i think also another lesson i've learned would be that uh i need to i need to be really connected to people to be happy um sometimes maybe i've doubted that because of you know who i am and the way I think, the kind of brain I've got that I sometimes felt like I really need to be alone sometimes, but I think people are right at the core of my happiness. That's That's been big, and that's been like kind of a difficult lesson to learn too because once you know that about yourself, it's a little bit – it makes you feel a bit vulnerable, you know. I'm not this kind of like solo man who wants to just like live in his tent out in the wilderness all the time. That's not me at all. Yeah. I really need to be part of a community. It doesn't have to be a particular community, but a community. It's so – it's so nourishing to be in that. Beautiful. And number three, number three, it's worth <laughs> it's worth traveling the world just to hear people's stories. Like, yeah, that was a big lesson as not only as a person but as a, as a um, you know a writer. I really like once I realized that I could find much more interesting stories than my own to tell. Like when I started meeting people and retelling their stories and telling stories about them, that was that was huge. I started out as this kind of like pretty random travel blogger who was just writing. Oh, I went here, I went there, and once I got that, the stories I was hearing were the best stories. That was big. <laughs> Sweet man, people have amazing stories. Everyone's got amazing stories. <laughs> I love it. You know, I love it. I, yeah. I never get sick of those stories. One of my dear friends says, "Anything for a story," and furthermore, it, it, that's in his own actions. And then, you know, the other thing is, you know, even before getting on the call with you, is just thinking, man, I see a homeless guy walking down the street. He's got his backpack on. Well, maybe he's just a wanderer. Hell, if I know what, whether or not he thinks he's homeless, right? He just doesn't have yes. a house. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't um, need one. And you sit down next to him for five minutes and he'll tell you an amazing story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just like just like the just like the single mum who picks you up, she's got her kids in the back driving home from school and you're hitchhiking and she picks you up and drives you to the edge of town and she tells you an amazing story about her kids. And yeah, those stories are, are fantastic. Man. Exactly. Man, that's great. And I the final question I have for you is so basic, man. It's how do people find you online? Okay, well, um, my my blog is uh, Raw Safari. That's um, rawsafari.com, R-A-W-S-A-F-A-R-I.com. Great, so that's rawsafari.com? Yep, that's where all the stories and the, and the um, tips on how to do crazy things with backpacks and <laughs> everything's there, yeah. How to, how to do it. And you've got great yeah, videos video. on the site too. I've watched a few of them. They're, they're entertaining. <laughs> They're pretty random. There's a lot of random stuff on that blog, but um, 
it's uh, I try to make it as as uh, honest and raw as I can. <laughs> sweet, sweet, Manny. It's been a pleasure, man. I really enjoy getting to know you. And Same, dude. This is really great. I'm glad we talked. It's been yeah. a nice conversation, man. Thank you. I hope to continue this conversation and get to know you more because I think we can uh, dive deeper in so many different topics. So, no doubt, man. Yeah. It's always a pleasure talking to, to travelers and, and adventurers. Yeah. Yeah, because after all, I think we can. we all need to be at some point in our lives to really bite into that courage to step into that person and to create a new story for ourselves that maybe we don't know what the ending is going to be you know you know people just people just need to realize that they're they're so brave you know right now just doing the things that they're doing right now requires so much courage and you can turn that courage into things that are fun as as well as uh challenging yeah so with you on that man when on that i have to tell you make it a great journey continue you have a bus trip upcoming right i'm doing a border run yeah i'm in um, <laughs> thailand now and i want to stay a bit longer because i just love thailand um, so i'm going to do a quick uh, quick border run yeah <laughs> right on man and yeah so with that i appreciate it good luck on your border run and i guess we'll see that on the blog if you if that's where you're updating there's, there's always going to be more stuff coming on the blog for sure and uh, it's been really a pleasure talking to you, Timo. Thank yeah, you. likewise, Manny. Have a great day. You too, man. Happy trails. Right, man. Yeah, cheers. Later.